Well, I want to, uh, my name is Pastor Steve, and uh, I want to extend to you a greeting from other EFCA churches all around the United States. So this last week, um, our whole staff was able to go to California and be involved with the EFCA One Conference. And so we gathered there and we had these really encouraging breakout sessions for our different roles in the church. And uh, we got to pray for our churches. We prayed for you guys. And I just wanted to extend uh, the greetings from so many other churches to you. Uh, we have been walking through um, a sermon series over the summer called Foundations of the Faith, the summer seminars. And uh, last week we started into an examination of the church. And so what is the church? Um, what makes it up? How is it put together? And what's its leadership like? Uh, and then how do we live together in this thing called the church? And so um, we're going to pick that up again today. We're going to look at the church's design design, its leadership, and its mission. So one thing that I think that we can all agree with is that our culture has elevated the self to the highest role of authority in our lives. That we have been encouraged by our culture to be kind of the arbiters of truth, the, the, the deciders of what truth is. And, and it's about uh, benefiting ourselves or giving us power. And unfortunately, that has also trickled into the life of churches. And so often we see leadership uh, or the design of the church get moved toward this understanding of power over other people. And a lot of abuses and a lot of harm has come out of that. Maybe some of you have experienced that in churches as well. But Jesus has called us to a different way of living and a different way of organizing the church. He's called us to a different mission. Just as sort of a, an example, I, I grew up with, uh, without a lot of mentorship in my faith. And so I, I went to church, but I went to a church that didn't really proclaim the gospel. I went to Sunday school and I learned things about Jesus, but I didn't have people who were shaping me along the way to love Jesus and to walk with him. And so as I became a, a teenager, I was not a believer, and I walked the opposite direction, away from Christ. And when he pursued me and he brought me to himself, he saved me out of a life of, of definite sin. Um, I, I really had nowhere to turn. And so it really was me and a, n a number of other young Christians who were voraciously reading the Bible and trying to figure out how to apply all of this to our lives. And so you get to the Old Testament and you're looking at the various kinds of threads and what am I allowed to wear? How do I apply that? So kind of all the questions, right? It really wasn't until... Um, I felt a call toward ministry and went toward, to Bible college that I finally received the mentorship that I so desperately needed. And I was so blessed by people who poured into me, professors and pastors at the church that I was attending with Jenny, who we were friends at the time, but later were married. And, 
And so these, these people poured into my life. They helped me to understand how to interpret Scripture and also how to apply it. And not just for myself. They really made a point of, of showing me that this isn't about power or my leadership. It wasn't their, their version of leadership was not that you get to go and make decisions for the church, but instead to serve the church. And so I had one uh, pastor who told me, when you go off to seminary, off in Kentucky, and you get into a church there, don't try to preach. Go scrub toilets. Preaching will come in time. And that's something that I really valued. What he meant by that was, don't go with your own agenda. Don't go and seek to be the leader. Instead, go and seek to be a servant. Find out what that congregation needs and engage at that point of need. And that has been so helpful in my life of ministry. When we think about the church's design, its leadership, its mission, we need to start with whose church it is. And it isn't ours as individuals. It isn't ours as pastors. Instead, it's the church of Jesus Christ. We need to start there. And so the church's design is based on the person, the work, and the character of Jesus. Its leadership is supposed to pattern after Jesus. And its mission is Jesus' own mission. And so I'd like us to turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. If you don't have your Bible, just raise your hand. We'll get a Bible to you. Anybody need one? All right, we all got them. That's awesome. So, Matthew 28, the first gospel, the very end of it, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we call this section of scripture the Great Commission. This is Jesus sending out his disciples and saying, you are now on mission for me. And he's calling them to some specific things. And as we think about this in relation to the design and the mission of the church, this is what we are to do as the body belonging to our head, Christ Jesus. And so Jesus, first of all, has all authority in heaven and on earth. So as we went through the, the book of John, um, we really seized on that Jesus is God. That he has the authority of God. He has been given authority over all of the powers, the principalities, the rulers of this world. He has authority over all things. And he has sent his followers to live into this mission. And so as Jesus' church, our function is to bear witness to Jesus' authority and to take his direction. And the direction that we're given in this passage, our primary purpose, is to make disciples. Make disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is basically, at its heart, a follower or a student. 
And so what we're being called to is to be followers of Jesus. We walk after him. We do what he did. We, we love like he loves. We engage the things that he is interested in. Our mission becomes his mission, or his mission becomes our mission. It's a better way to say that. And so we are, we're students of Jesus. We want to learn to be like him. We want to be conformed into the image of Christ Jesus. That is our purpose. And so those of us who are disciples, our function then is to then go and to make disciples. So we get to be those who turn around and pour into other people. That is what every single believer in Christ Jesus is called to, is to pour into other people to help to be followers of Jesus that help make followers of Jesus. Just like those professors did in my life. And there are just a few basic instructions for this discipleship. First of all, it, it's Jesus who's sending, so we want to rem remember that we're going to him for how we're to do this. We're going to the gospel message about Jesus to know how we're to do this discipleship. The second thing is that where we're being sent is not defined. He doesn't say go to a specific place. In fact, the command is not to go. Because of the way we write English, that's how it appears on the page. But the command form is actually the make disciples. There's a participle, we call it, a little Greek uh, word. Um, and it really means as you are going. And so it's not clearly defining where we're supposed to land or where we're supposed to go. It's as we're going there, as we're on the road, as we are um, doing life. Whether we're stationed here for a long period of time or we feel called by the Lord to go to far-flung reaches of the world doesn't really matter. Wherever you find yourself, that is where your mission is. And your mission is to make disciples. That's for every single one of us. Another thing to consider is that um, as people are turning from their own direction and beginning to submit to Jesus' direction in faith, they're submitting to Jesus, that is the time for them to be baptized. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so what this is, is really, it's a, it's a message out to the world that there's a change in allegiance. We were living for ourselves. We were living as the captains or the kings of our own lives. And now we've intentionally submitted ourselves under the lordship of Christ Jesus. And so as that's happening, we are giving a public witness to what he's doing in our lives. That's what baptism is really all about. It's telling the world, I've switched sides. And so we have an opportunity, just as Kaya mentioned, that on the 9th of July, we've got a, a baptism class. If you've ever been curious about what do we believe about baptism, why is it important, how is this supposed to look, all of those things. And there's no commitment to necessarily go through with baptism. If you just want to learn about it, come and join us on July 9th after both services. And then on the 16th, if you're feeling that tug 
to be baptized as believers, to, to bear witness to this change of allegiance. If you've never done that for yourself, this is a time to do that. And it's a great time for us to encourage you as the family of faith in that in that walk. And so come be a part of that on the 16th. We've got a sign-up sheet on the back, or you can go online to sign up for the class or the baptism. So um, the baptism serves as the sign to the rest of the world about what we believe and who we are. And then Jesus is also telling us to teach these new and growing believers to obey his commands. And that's really important because in our world, we're being taught that obedience is actually not a good thing. The only time that it's a good thing is when other people are obeying us, right? We get to be king. But that isn't what we've been called to. When we've changed allegiance, we're bringing ourselves under the headship, the lordship of Christ Jesus. And so we submit to his commands. We obey them. And this obedience is not a bad thing. This isn't about rote rules and legalism. This is about living a love relationship with the living God who loves us, who cares for us, who has created us for good things. It's a cultivation that happens in our lives. So this obedience is about cultivation. It's about discipleship. It's about growing to look like Jesus. You know, I was at the EFCA1 conference this week, and I was just overwhelmed at how this discipleship is happening out into the world. There were all these videos that these missionaries posted and we got to watch about what was happening in their ministries. And we were hearing about people in the Congo and we were hearing about uh, people in Europe and we were hearing about what was happening in Ukraine and we're hearing about what's happening in Asia. And it just, it brought tears. I, I started crying and I couldn't stop crying for like 40 minutes. They're just running down my face and I'm just trying not to be conspicuous to everybody else around me. But it's just, it's this overwhelming joy of what God is doing in the world as people are becoming believers in him. And, and they were calling and they were saying, please send more missionaries to the field. There are so many people who are desperate to hear the gospel message. There are people who are responding to the gospel. So many that we can't support them all. We need more missionaries. What a beautiful problem. This great commission gives our lives a purpose to make much of Jesus and help others to do the same. And that's why the church exists. It's why we're here. It's what drives our disciple by doing thought process here at New Life. It's what we want to be doing. Just as I needed mentorship in my life, these professors and these pastors who came along and poured into me, and they brought my life from chaos into cultivated order. So the local church also needs that cultivation and that setting things into order in order to be effective in its outreach, its ministry, its discipleship. And so we're told in 1 Corinthians 12 that Jesus actually provides for that within his body by giving spiritual gifts to, uh, to his people, to you. 
And so it, it tells us that, um, that all of us are members of the body of Christ with our own callings and gifts and that, that God has placed in the body apostles and prophets and teachers and those who work miracles, those with gifts of healing, of helping, and of wise guidance. And so each of us have been given gifts that are meant to be used in the body to help streamline and cultivate and build and to send out into the world. New Life's mission statement says that we exist to glorify God by enjoying and loving him, loving others and leading people to become devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So because we want to love Jesus and love people, it's important that we are organized for this purpose. And in scripture, we're given a number of these roles uh, of people within the body who are called to different functions. And there's two roles in particular that are very important. They come up over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. And those roles are the elder and the deacon. And so, um, I'd like us to turn then to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So 1 Timothy is after um, the Thessalonians, letters to the Thessalonians, and before Titus and Hebrews. So as you're paging there, last week um, I introduced the problems that were occurring in the city of Ephesus. And there was a group that was skewing doctrine that led to a really problematic thinking about God. And so they were actually lowering God and kind of seeking a spirituality around him, apart from him. And that led to conflict and it led to break, relational breakdowns and toward a lot of harm within the church. And it was spreading. And so Paul actually traveled there and, and um, engaged with them. And he left Timothy um, in that church to help set it into order. And so the way that Paul was encouraging health and sound teaching in the church was by appointing healthy, godly leaders to teach and model Jesus' commands. So Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So let's think about that as we take a look at um, the first 13 verses of 1 Timothy 3. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. 
He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious uh, talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So the roles of elders and deacons have been lifted up to help lead the church and to organize and pursue its mission. Elders were not a new concept in the New Testament. This is actually a concept that starts at the very beginning of Judaism. And, and elders are kind of these, uh, the concept is these older people that have navigated life well. So they haven't, uh, you know, they've managed to not be eaten by bears. And... Uh, so then um, they're able to help other people with wisdom on how not to be eaten by bears. So that's kind of the concept is these are wise people that help the next generation learn and navigate through life. And, uh, um, and so this is important to the life of the body. But in the New Testament, there's a, a bit of a shift in how we consider eldership. It, it isn't that they're necessarily older people. But it's a wisdom that comes from time spent with the Lord. So they're spiritually mature people. Regardless of their age, how have they been living with Christ, living out his, his commands? And so these elders are being raised up from within the local church body to reflect the congregation, to represent the congregation, to teach, to protect, to lead the congregation in following Jesus. So yeah, please take a look at the, the, the screen there. There's kind of these different um, roles for elders and deacons. And I just want us to, to consider like what we read this morning from Revelation. There we saw elders who were around the throne of God. And they were leading the multitude in worshiping both God the Father and Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to have in mind when we think about eldership, is those who worship first, those who, who lean into that deep relationship where they are bowing down before the Lord and they're encouraging the rest of the church to do the same. And so there's this eternal viewpoint that we should have, even as we are putting this into practice here in the local church today. Unfortunately, I have often seen people approach 1 Timothy 3 as sort of a checklist that happens when somebody wants to become an elder in a church. So that's when this suddenly gets applied. Like, oh, he wants to be an elder. Well, let's see. Um, does he do this? And does he do this? And does he do this? And he doesn't do that, right? And that is not what Paul has in mind here. Instead, this is about a fruit that comes out of deep relationship with Jesus Christ. That these people are people that we see in our congregation who are living into this relationship with Jesus. And it's the fruit that comes out of it that shows up looking like this. 
So this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. It's not meant to be a checklist. It is meant to say, look for the fruit that is coming out of real, authentic relationship. So when our church needs leadership, we're looking for the people who are living into these things. Deacons are a new role in the New Testament. And so they were developed and, and lifted up by the elders to bring biblical justice into a difficult situation in Acts 6, where the church had lost its way in some things. And there was actually some racism that was going on between these two groups of believers. And one group was being uh, set aside and they weren't being included in a distribution of food. So these widows were going hungry and they were starving because they weren't the right sort of believer. And the elders prayed about this, and the Holy Spirit gave them wisdom in this. And it really was this amazing situation where they said, okay, we need to raise up people to, to meet this physical need within the church. And it's not right for us to stop what we're doing, the spiritual oversight and care of the, uh, the body. But we need people who are going to lean into the physical. But they need to be godly people. They need to be uh, people who exhibit these character qualities. And what was really fantastic was that they lifted them up, not from all the different believers, not from the accepted group, but from the group that had been not accepted. And rather than this becoming a put the shoe on the other foot, now we're going to not give food to the other widows in the acceptable group, in a sense, what they did was they were now over the distribution of food for everyone. And it was such a beautiful thing that many Jews became believers in Christ Jesus because of how it was handled. There was love that was displayed through this. And it led to people coming to faith in Christ. I think that if we were to approach this concept of eldership and, and, and deacons um, from a worldly perspective, what would happen is something that we actually sometimes see, and that is people run after and lift up eldership because they want to use it for their own axes to grind or their own purposes. And they try to stay away from this idea of being a deacon, being a servant to the rest of the church. But Jesus models the exact opposite. And so in Matthew 20, he tells us, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our model. That's what we are to pursue when we're thinking about the leadership of the church. It becomes a servant leadership, whether it's in eldership or it's in this diaconate, in this role of being a deacon. It's meant to be serving to the life of the body. 
And when we do that well, when we model the love of Jesus in service, then we see some really amazing things of the church accomplishing Jesus' tasks in the world. Just as Paul tells Timothy in the next chapter, watch your life and doctrine closely. So deacons watch and support the life of the local church and elders watch and lead the doctrine of the church. So kind of a simple way to look at this is that elders serve by leading the church and deacons lead in serving the church. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. Elders serve by leading the church and deacons lead in serving the church. What that should do is instead of doing this number, it should do this and bring these two, two forms of leadership together, working in concert for Jesus' mission into the world. There's no place for one to be above the other and denigrating the other one. So because these roles have been given to lead Jesus' church, we want to have some clarity about them. We want to make sure we understand them. And so I just want to bring up a couple of points from within these lists that, that are often confused. And so the first one is overseer. So that, that's the word that we see here in, in the NIV. Here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. So this idea of overseer is one particular Greek word. And there are three Greek words that are, are used to talk about the leadership or, or eldership of the church. And so um, I'm just going to throw out Greek words. Bear with me. One of them is presbyteros. We actually get the term Presbyterian from this. And so presbyteros just means that elder, the guy who escaped from the bear. You know, he, he's the wise guy who's able to tell the next generation, this is how you avoid being eaten by the bear. Okay. Then, um, so I, I don't know, I, I had an experience with a bear once, so maybe that's why this is coming up. I escaped with white hair. Um, episcopos is the second term, and we might have heard of Episcopalian. That's where this word comes from. And that, this just basically means one who has management over or oversight, or gives decisions about something. And then the third one is poimen. And poimen basically means pastor or shepherd. But we have places where these are slightly nuanced in Scripture. But we also have places where it's pretty obvious that they're all talking about the same role eldership. And so there are places where all three are used in the same context, dealing with the same people. And so what I want to get across is all three of these refer to eldership. It indicates the same role. And Paul then says that the elder is to be above reproach. And what does that mean, above reproach? The, the Greek word basically means free from all accusation. And so whose accusation? I think it's important that we understand this. Um, we know that it's not the devil's reproach because the devil is opposed to us and he is going to accuse. Okay? So we know it's not the devil. 
It's not unbelievers who are outside the church because we know that they live differently than we do. They don't have the same commitment under the lordship of Christ Jesus. So it's not their reproach. So we can set that aside. So whose reproach is this? And I would, I would suggest that this is God's own reproach, his own accusation, or the loving accusation that comes within the family of faith. Meaning, uh, just in the situation with those two groups of, of believers, the, the right group and the wrong group, complaints came to the elders. There was a reproach that was a good reproach to have. There's a, an example came from our time at the conference this week, and it was really just a tragic situation. But there was a pastor that we had to vote on removing his his ordination to ministry. And it was because he had been um, holding sort of an abusive, condescending attitude toward other people, including other pastors. And it was just really rough on them. And he had been called to repent, he had been called to reconcile, and he had refused to do so. And he forced the issue to become a public one at our conference, and so we had to vote based on the evidence. And so we voted to remove his ordination. And nobody did that with glee. That was a tragic, tragic situation and, and just grieved our hearts. And so a number of us went over and just laid hands on him and prayed over him afterward. Because that is not what we want, but that was a reproach from within the body. And so we want to live in a way that is above reproach. We want to live free from God's accusation and also the accusation within the body. So I was reading a, a commentary and Danny Aiken, um, writing on this passage, he, he brought it up this way. He said, we should always ask ourselves this question. If everything in our lives were laid bare and everybody could see it, would I want the whole church to live as I live? Now, what he doesn't mean by that is perfectionism, that we have to be absolutely perfect at all times. Now, what he means by that is, do we have patterns of sin? Do we have things that are oppositional to the gospel that are going on in our lives that we would be passing on if we were in leadership within the church? We don't want to live that way. Another thing to look at is a good reputation with outsiders. So there's a number of things that we could dig into here, but we're just going to look at this next one. A good reputation with outsiders. Well, what does that mean? We know that we're not supposed to live like those in the world, that we're in the world, but we're not of the world, that we're supposed to, call, uh, to live a different and called life. So... How do we live in a way that keeps a good reputation? Because sometimes when we're in close proximity with unbelievers, there's a pull for us to live like them or to be like them. And we know that we are not supposed to live that way. So how, how does this get applied? And what I think is, is meant here, uh, what I believe is that it's talking about we live in such a way that all the people who are around us, unbelievers, can look at our lives and say, this is a person who lives differently. When I'm looking for truth, when I'm looking for something solid, when I need help, 
When I need somebody who is going to love me, they know where to turn. They come to us because we're living in Christ and our relationship has an impact to the world around us. And so it acts as a signpost. The way we live in relationship with Jesus points people to the living God. So then the, this list in 8 through 13 on deacons is not shorter because of fewer character qualities are being required of them. Remember, it's not a checklist, right? We don't want to look at this as a checklist. Instead, he's saying the exact opposite. Paul is saying, no, the, these deacons are being called into similar things as the elders. So these are qualifications for the entire body. This is the fruit that comes out of our relationship for the entire body. So when we're looking to set up elders and set up deacons, we're looking for similar character qualities. We're seeing them live out this faith. And so these, these lists are really for all believers. And Paul reiterates that in the, in the next part of this message. So let's take a look at 14 through 16. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Who? People. Wait, did he say elders and deacons? No, he said people. This is for all of us. How people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. The way we live is evidence of what we believe. And it has an impact on the whole world, and especially on the household of faith, the body of which Christ is the head. And so these are important if we are going to lead other people in discipleship. Our servant leadership needs to be based on the person and the work and the gospel of Christ Jesus. And... Paul, once again, just like we talked about last week with his use of this word mystery as sort of a rhetorical device to, to kind of sock it to the Gnostics, he does it once again. He brings up this term mystery. And this time the mystery isn't the joining of two peoples. It's a summation of the gospel. That's how we know it's this rhetorical device. Jesus appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. There are all these witnesses at, at different levels that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is Lord over all these things, that we are bringing ourselves under his lordship for a greater purpose, that our discipleship is about reflecting relationship with him. And so this is the heart of our disciple-making mission, a recognition of the gospel. And when we place our faith in Christ, when we live that out, it has an impact on the world around us. It's no longer about us seeking knowledge or seeking a checklist to give ourselves a position of authority over other people. 
It is about us embracing relationship with Jesus Christ through his spirit and being equipped for the service of the rest of the body. That's what we're looking for in leadership, whether it's elders or deacons and how they function together. And we want to do this because, just like we read earlier from Revelation, that someday we are going to be the ones standing before the throne of God. We are going to be standing there worshiping him. And if we lean into these things, if we live this out as Christ has called us to, we are going to be able to look around and see people who are there standing before the throne because of the way we've done this. Let's take that and embrace that as we order our church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for being the God of everything and the creator, the sustainer, the one who has loved us and you have loved us so much that you gave your son for us. The divine Christ, Jesus, we are so grateful for you giving yourself and for teaching us, instructing us on how we are to live as your followers and how we are to order our church. Lord, we're grateful for your word, and we ask, Lord, that we would order ourselves according to your word and love you to not see this as rote and dry and drab rules to follow, but instead to see this as cultivating green work in our lives with fruitfulness and flowering. Lord, let it cause us to flourish and let the world see that and be amazed and let that be an invitation to them to come to you because you are good and you prove yourself within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.